They actually seem to believe that we don't know what they're doing and what their game plan is, but we do. And we're pissed because it's been our work, it's been our treasure, our blood that's done everything positive America has ever done. It's been its citizens. It hasn't been a bunch of elitist thugs who are parasites on the very system they seek to destroy. They call us deplorables, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists, even as they allow deadly drugs and countless numbers of people wanting to destroy us across our borders, even as they push vaccines that kill our children and imprison real American patriots and commit treason many times over. Well, we Americans are unlike any people tyrants have faced before. We know our rights, we demand our freedom and liberty, and we demand the servants of the people learn their place. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But, in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. End of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address. So Abraham Lincoln, the man himself, the Republican, the man who oversaw a battle in which 600,000 Americans lost their lives to secure the freedom of blacks in the United States. And as I've said a number of times, the first three countries to abolish slavery were actually run by white men. And slavery goes on today in many of the countries of Africa and other nations. Slavery, in a sense, uh, the... the, uh, the Immigrants, the illegal aliens, whatever you call them, that are coming across the border, of course, there are many women and young boys who are, are taken away for sexual slavery. So slavery still exists in the world. It's still as evil as it ever was. But, um, you know, Lincoln is, is wrong in the sense that 
this won't be forgotten, that the, the battle, the Civil War won't be forgotten, because many of our brothers and sisters in this country have forgotten it, and many have forgotten the lessons that it taught. And there's a difference, you know, there's, there's those of us that are enlightened, and then there are individuals, many of which uh, have been indoctrinated, and we're going to talk about that a little bit uh, right now. So we get into just a couple articles that I want to use to prove my point in this, and that is this article, this uh, young Chiefs fan that is dressed up in uh, Native American garb and has his one half of his face black and one half of his face red, which is the chief's colors right uh so he is you know immediately attacked in the media this little boy and <laughs> the woke sports website uh deadpin uh has been uh you know just going crazy since monday after this innocent boy in native american headdress and war paint they've they've painted him as a racist and turns out that he himself has Native American blood in him. Hmm. Well, geez, that has happened before, hasn't it? Where uh, we have seen the media jump to a conclusion before knowing the facts. And that brings up the whole idea of intent. What's the intent of this little boy or his parents to send and deliver a, a racist message? Of course not. It used to matter in this country what a person's intent was. Even our, our legal system uh, has checks and balances and requirements to prove intent. And for that matter, it used to be innocent until proven guilty in this country. Now it is guilty if your beliefs are against ours uh, and no chance of innocence. And we see that every day with the, with the uh, lawfare and the attacks on President Trump. Uh, doesn't work the other way for the other side of the aisle, though, does it? Doesn't work that way. We have Biden still in office, who's committed treason a number of times, who should be in a jail cell, awaiting his sentence. We have a daily barrage of articles like this and situations like this where it's all about making the headline. And yes, I realize the media was always that way, but not to this extent. And uh, this is just a good example of it. Another example is, is Disney. Okay, so Woke Disney buries social goals in long list of risks to investors in required SEC filing. So not only are, not only are the uh, corporate fascists, you know, making this woke agenda their priority, they're also now getting deceptive about it because we're on to them, because they're concerned about the consequences that they're going to have to suffer. And uh, the American people know better. And we're awake. We're, you're not going to pull this kind of crap over on the American people anymore. And you know, uh, hopefully, hopefully, less and less people go to the Disney parks. And already people are rejecting their movies. So, again, you know, the, the, the overreaction of a perceived social bias and uh, yes I'm not naive enough to to think that that doesn't exist in some cases but the true problem came in when the number one man who had the greatest opportunity to really improve on the already improved race relations speaking of 
Barack Obama, who instead weaponized lies in the case of uh, in, in Ferguson. He is the starting point of the of the severe slope downward and this dissension into idiocy and guilty until proven innocent and those people who have the values that made our country great um, those of us who have those values and we are more in tune with Lincoln than than people like Barack Obama or Liz Cheney for that matter who thinks she is uh, <laughs> you know and we see it day after day uh, here's another one. So, the school district offers classes separated by race to shrink learning gap. I talked about this one briefly yesterday. Um, we've gone backwards in in our efforts to try to realize Martin Luther King's Martin Luther King Jr.'s dream, and that is evident everywhere you look. We have basically the indoctrination and this is proof of this indoctrination all these articles and what's going on and what we're seeing in our schools and what we're seeing in our uh, workplaces and what we're seeing in our daily lives and you know the only group that that really is being attacked right now well there's two of them the Jews and the white people that aren't Jewish and uh, of those white people you know the the worst of the worst is the Christian white person with, of course, leanings politically to the right. So we have this, this concept of intent, and that has been overlooked. Now we just have victimhood. This is the result of, of kids being given safe spaces and all the other crap that we talk about, and having drilled into their brain that they are victims to include being victims of their parents' uh, misguided belief system. Now, pe if people talk about, you know, these ideas, uh, well, they're, we're more modern, we're, we're up with the times, we're this or that. Well, the truth is that truth never goes out of style. The truth is that truth is always truth and doesn't change uh, as, as far as principles go. I mean, uh, the golden rule is the golden rule, and, and you're not going to change the definition of the golden rule uh, by changing a few words. And this is what the far left has have done. They've changed a few words. They, they package it in a pretty package. It sounds really nice. But in the end, it's sheer Marxism, and the number one goal is to divide, divide us so that they can gain more power. And I'm speaking specifically politically now that um, the more we're divided, the more they win. So I thought that, uh, you know, I would like to start out just by kind of resetting the table here and taking a look at uh, where we are at in the 1960s and uh, going from there. So uh, let's do that. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, 
A great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That one day on the Red Hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will they be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. My four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted. And every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discourse of our nation 
into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Be able to sing with new meaning, my country tears of thee. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. And so let freedom ring. From the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring. From the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of Mississippi, from every mountainside. Let freedom ring and when we when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, free at last. So Martin Luther King, what would he say today? Well, I actually had the opportunity to ask uh, Alveda King that very question when I had her on this show some time ago. I'd love to have her back. I think I'll get her back. Um... He would be absolutely befuddled to see that um, we are going back to segregation, and it's actually desired by the the very side of the aisle that supposedly championed his cause. That in itself is a fallacy, of course. We know what the voting in, in Congress was for both Eisenhower's uh, civil rights bill and then you know the early 60s. We know that it was the Republicans that pushed it through. Uh, so again, the question of enlightenment versus ignorance, the question of intent, uh, you know, it's versus wokeness and versus, you know, auto automatic guilt. Uh, so we find ourselves in a situation where we are going further and further away from that dream. And there are those of us that uh, our mega people who we believe in the Constitution, we we don't see color. We believe that individual rights are exactly that, individual human rights that are given by God. And uh, yet we find ourselves here, and that ha is a direct result of our education system. And uh, as patriots, we know that, and that's why we're in the schools fighting for our children's education. Be right back after this. <laughs>
American Patriots. It's me, Wayne Alaroot, otherwise known as War. I have a very special announcement for all of you. My hit show, Wayne Alaroot, Raw and Unfiltered, is coming to the brand new station that's taking over the nation, Blessed News Network. God has opened a door in my life to be part of this amazing new Christian conservative network live every night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on our channel on Roku TV, Apple TV, Amazon Fire TV, and streaming live on the Blessed News iPhone and Android apps. Tune in to watch me drive home the truth and dismantle the fake news narrative with big name nightly guests and exclusive interviews with all the heavy hitters you know and love. Become part of history as we make America godly again and launch the first faith-centered conservative broadcasting network where Jesus Christ is commander-in-chief of all of our stories and where truth and integrity really matter. Join me Monday through Friday on any of our platforms or on the Blessed News website, blessed.news, where you can stream all the shows for free or you can sign up for Blessed Plus for even more access to Raw and Unfiltered with me, Wayne Allen Root, the hardest work a man in show business. Thank you, and God bless America. Steel News will be joining the Blessed News Network 11 p.m. weeknights. I'm Ann Vandersteel, and I'm very excited to be a part of the programming put together by Jake Lang. Doesn't matter if he's behind bars, he's a January 6th political hero, as far as I'm concerned. And Steel News will be reporting the truth of everything happening, not only in the swamp, but around the world to help you put into context what's really going on so you can make the best decisions for you and your family. Steel News, 11 p.m. on the Blessed News Network. All right, we're back. We were talking about um, indoctrination versus enlightenment and intent versus victimhood. And the whole idea of victimhood has spawned this, uh, this concept, this idea of making those that were victimized whole. And um, we talk about monetary compensation. We talk about and do special programs and all kinds of things to try to make up for our sins of the past, so to speak. And um, the... The problem is that those people who we're taking money from uh, are not the perpetrators of what had happened in the past. And uh, I guess I'll give you a real simple example. So if my grandfather or great-grandfather went to prison because he committed a crime, should I be expected to go to prison to serve the rest of his time if he dies before that before he satisfied that sentence. And it, it may seem odd to you to have that kind of comparison, but think about it. When when the, the government is taking your money, what are, their take, what are they taking? They're taking your time. The, the money that you worked for, the money that you spent a certain period of your life working for, uh, that is taking your time. So this whole victimhood mentality has led to to many things and and many directions many programs and what it comes down to always in the end is uh personal responsibility versus victimhood and we have you know uh, marxism the utopia of marxism the lie of marxism and communism is once again um infecting the younger generations and we have of course you know, in our recent past, we had a lot of the 1960s uh, radicals teaching our children in universities, such as Bill Ayers and others. 
And um, so we, we come down to this argument of intent, right, versus victimhood. And then it, it goes into what, which system supposedly helps uh, reduce the number of victims and is most based on justice. And uh, we find ourselves shocked by the fact that there are so many Americans who, who don't understand that the intent of the Constitution, that the system of government that we have, has been bastardized by people with uh, nefarious agendas. And what they're seeing is not what America was supposed to be. Our side of the aisle, we say, let's straighten America up. Let's get back to what America was supposed to be. Let's get back to individual freedom and liberty, regardless of race. And um, the other side of the aisle is saying, uh, no, this this is the system that was intended. And uh, we want to go to the utopia of Marxism, which for some reason, even though it's been tried and tried again and failed every time, people believe in this utopia, like you can take human nature out of the human and you never will. So I wanted to show you this uh, this clip. It's about 20 minutes long. We'll probably take a break in the middle of it. But uh, this is Thomas Sowell, who does a great job explaining exactly what I'm talking about and much more. Became You began to be dissuaded about of Marxism. And of government, uh, of government in general, because the, the, the government uh, is not out there at the personification of, of the national interests. Right. They're, they have their own interests. And the labor departments was clearly an interest in, in keeping the minimum wage because that's, the, that's their jobs and careers All right. and power. In your, which brings us, if I may, to one of my favorite books, your 2000 book. This is a beat up old copy. Mm -hmm. This book, Conflict of Visions. Yes. Which you published in 2007. And no. you lay out, I'm sorry. 1987. I beg your pardon. 1987. Reprinted in 2007. Uh, well, beat up as this book is, it turns <laughs> out this is a reprint. Sorry. 1987. And you lay out two competing ways of looking at economics and policy, really two competing ways of looking at life that go back at least 200 years, the constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. The constrained vision, I'm quoting from A Conflict of Visions, sees the evils of the world as deriving from the limited and unhappy choices available given the inherent moral and intellectual limitations of human beings, close quote. So the constrained vision under itself, understands itself as constrained by the limitations of reality itself. Yes. Is that yes. Is that's correct? Yes. Okay. In other words, they cannot proceed as so many do that good things happen automatically, but bad things are somebody's fault. Got it. Got it. And then to continue here, the constrained vision, again, quoting from a conflict of visions, for the amelioration, improvement of the human condition, the constrained vision relies on certain social processes such as moral traditions, the marketplace, or families, mm. not government. Mm. So explain that. Why, why do we rely, why do, why do we rely on, so, on processes rather than the will of the people instituting changes to improve our condition? Well, uh, it doesn't ignore government. Uh, uh, even for the market, the work you have to have a government is, uh, Europe discovered when the Roman Empire collapsed and the right. economies collapsed also. Uh, but I, I guess um, one of the reasons would be that with the government you have surrogate decision makers and they cannot possibly know as much as the individuals 
whose personal decisions have been preempted. I see. I see. All right. Which brings us to the unconstrained vision. When Again, I'm quoting you. When Rousseau said that man is born free but everywhere in chains, he expressed the essence of the unconstrained vision which the, in which the fundamental problem is not nature or man but institutions. Yes. Would you explain that one? Well, he has a notion that, uh, again, that, that good things happen naturally. Uh, and if they're bad things, it's because uh, institutions, including civilization itself, have, have made these bad things happen. And, of course, uh, and I think that that's really the, uh, the, uh, the implicit assumption behind a lot of things that are said on the left today. Uh, and when, why in my most recent book I go to a lot of trouble to show that uh, in nature, uh, there is nothing resembling equal opportunity. That wherever you look around the country, around the, around the world, uh, you find people who live up in the mountains, poor and backwards, even in the richest countries, uh, including the United States. Mm -hmm. I believe the, the poorest country in the United States, the county rather, uh, was in a mountain community, uh, which was almost 100% white. Somewhere and, in Appalachia, West Virginia, yes, yeah, Southern yeah, Ohio, or, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that men in that in that county had a life expectancy ten years less than men in a, in a county in, in in Virginia. And the constrained, the unconstrained vision says, "Let's fix that. We surely we can pass a law that would improve that." And the constrained vision says, "Well, now wait a moment. If people who live in isolated pockets in mountains." are poor and backwards all around the world, and we see this pattern over and over and over again, maybe there's something very deeply rooted in reality about that yes. that's hard for us to get at. Correct? Yes. All right. So in the book, A Conflict of Visions, you're very dispassionate and very analytical, and you lay out the unconstrained vision, and you lay out the constrained vision, and you don't really come out blazing in favor of one or the other. No, it, 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 yeah, the, the, that is not a book meant to, meant to uh, show one vision is, is, is better than the other. It, it's there to show you what, what they are and what right. you're assuming if you, if you go one direction or another. Okay. And it's, it's to encourage people to understand the implicit assumptions behind all this, without which you're, you're just at, 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 lot, at loose ends. All right. So, pondering all this, I... I Notice something, a, a column that you wrote, this is a couple of years ago, in which you rebutted Nicholas Kristof of the New York Times. And Kristof had ascribed the gaps between African Americans and whites in America, gaps in wealth, gaps in educational achievement, the usual gaps, mm -hmm. to, and this is a quotation from Kristof, to the lingering effects of slavery, close quote. Oh, yes. And here's Tom Sowell, quote, if we wanted to be serious about evidence, we might compare where blacks stood 100 years after the end of slavery with where they stood after 30 years of the liberal welfare state. In other words, we could compare hard evidence on the legacy of slavery with hard evidence on the legacy of liberals." Close quote. And so there it is, life is hard. You use the word hard. You, you use the word serious. You use evidence. Tom Sowell is a man of the constrained vision through and through and through, correct? Yes. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, yes, you know, I, I, part of a, of a vanishing breed, I might add. So when, so when you were a Marxist, 
the notion. Explain that because the Mar Marxism. Well, but no, no. You see, yeah, so that's complicated. I, even when I was a Marxist, I, I had the same intellectual standards. Right. And, and that, that's what eventually led me away from it. Oh, I see. In other words, I didn't. I hadn't done all the research. I hadn't gone around the world looking, looking for business. evidence. Yes. Yes. Okay. So, and so socialism is a great idea. That does not mean it's a great reality. One of the things that disturbs me tremendously is about this enthusiasm for Bernie Sanders and socialism at a time when people are literally starving in Venezuela, an oil-rich country. You know, and they're, they're, you know, they're breaking into, into grocery stores to try to get food and they're fleeing to neighboring countries, most of which are not all that prosperous themselves, but, but at least you don't starve to death in them. Uh, and, and none of that makes a bit a bit of difference. Mm -hmm. I don't think most of these people who are out there cheering for Bernie Sanders have given a thought to Venezuela. To the evidence. That's right. To the evidence. Yes. All right. Which brings us to something that you refer to in a number of columns as the retrogression, the experience of African Americans in this country. Mm. Economic progress, I'm quoting you. Despite the grand myth that black economic progress began or accelerated with the passage of the civil rights laws and the war on poverty programs of the 1960s, the fact is that the poverty rate among blacks fell from 87% in 1940 to 47% in 1960. But over the next 20 years, the poverty rate among blacks fell another 18 percentage points. This was just the continuation of, pre of a previous economic trend, but at a slower rate of progress. It was not some grand deliverance, close quote. That is so counter to what we are taught in school, what appears on the editorial pages of newspapers. <laughs> and I, have, I feel as though I want to ask you, you really want to stick with that, that, that assertion? <laughs> well, I, 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 I have more evidence in my most, most recent book, uh, Discrimination and Disparities. Uh, I point out that this really is a pattern not peculiar to blacks or even to the United States, that you can see the same thing in England, you can see it in any number of other countries, that the poor were, were, were much worse off economically, let's say in the first half of the 20th century, and yet they, in terms of their own behavior, they were, they were, they had, they were far more decent uh, societies, uh, and, and afterwards, after, after this welfare state that's supposed to make them better off and, and, and better human beings. That's when the crime rate skyrocketed on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, the British were, no, were famous for being perhaps the most polite, considerate society uh, in the world prior to that. Uh, after that, you get things like the 2011 riots over there went through right. London, Manchester, where they where they're going through this, they 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 anticipated Ferguson uh, and uh, and uh, Baltimore by a few years, and the same thing is the the, the burning down of, of, of buildings, the throwing of gasoline bombs, at the whole schmear, uh, and none of those people were descendants of slaves. So so the poor people were doing if the the lesson of the 20th century is something like poor people, including in this country African Americans. Mm -hmm were improving their lot and leading fundamentally decent lives until the government decided to help them. Yeah, yes. That's a, that's a fair statement. Well, they're, they're, the way, they're better off uh, uh, economically because of what's been given. Right. But of course, when you, when you have the crime rate, 
I mean, I, I got I got the first inkling of this some years back when I was uh, uh, at some school in Harlem doing some research. And I had looked out the window and I mentioned in passing that when I was a little kid, I used to walk my dog in that park and looks of horror came over the students' faces. Nobody in his right mind would have a child going to that park, walking a dog or not. The principal was warning these students not to cross this park, which is about a block and a half wide, uh, even in groups of six. Uh, and, when I, and, and when I tell them about how I, in his hot summer nights I would sleep out on the fire escapes in Harlem, they looked at me like I was a man from Mars. People were doing that all over New York. They were doing it in Philadelphia, Washington, wherever I've known people. That was a common thing for poor people. We didn't have the money for air conditioning. Right. You slept out on, on the fire escape or in the parks. Where Walter grew up in a... In a Walter Williams. A, Walter Williams grew up in a, uh, a housing project in Philadelphia. He was saying on the hot summer nights, the people would be in this project have, have little balconies. They'd sleep out on the balconies. And the ones on the first floor who didn't have balconies would sleep out in the yard. And that there were old men who would, you could see sit on a hot summer night sitting outdoors into the wee hours playing cards or, uh, or checkers or whatever. It was a different world. Mm. It was and a the, the safe world. The, and it was infinitely safer. Now, what about family structure, Tom? Again, I'm quoting you. Most black children were being raised in two-parent families in 1960. Thirty years after the liberal welfare state, the great majority of black children were being raised by single parents. Yes. How, what, what, what's the, what, how does that, by the okay. way, we should, we should note that Pat Moynihan, Patrick Moynihan publishes the Moynihan Report in 1965. Yes. And he's alarmed because the uh, illegitimacy rate among black families mm -hmm. is 25% then. Now, among whites, it's over a third. Yes. Hispanics, it's over half. And among African-Americans, it's over 70%. What's going on there? Well, this is ha again, this too, you find the same thing in Britain. You find it in uh, France and Norway. You find it in the Western world. Uh, in, in fact, uh, there the dissolution any, of the family structure. Oh, yeah. There are any number of, of uh, Western nations where 40% of the children are, uh, are raised with, with only one parent. Right. Uh, at the extremes, uh, I, I compared to Asian countries, uh, at the extremes of Iceland, it's uh, two out of three uh, children born are raised in a single-parent home. Uh, in South Korea, it's one out of 66. Wow. Wow. And so, what, that's the welfare state? What, yes. It is. Oh, you, you, you're paying, you, you, you're creating a situation where if the, if the uh, first of all, the, the well, you're creating a situation where if the man stays there, the government will not give them give the woman welfare, uh, and if he leaves, he, he uh, it will. And so they're paying. They're paying. They're, when you pay people not to get married, more people don't get married. Right. Right. Okay. So, so what would have happened if Lyndon Johnson, instead of becoming a liberal, had remained a crusty, tough, skeptical <laughs> Texas Texas conservative, yes. which is certainly the way he started his career. If he, if Lyndon Johnson had embraced the constrained vision, instead of instituting the war on poverty and the Great Society and so forth, what would the country look like today? A lot better. You you would not have the same rate for crime and so on. Because you see, you can't have a welfare state in a democratic country unless you first have a welfare state vision. And when you buy all the assumptions of that vision, 
then you're buying a lot of trouble. One of the, one of the episodes I think epitomized it was in France in this case. Uh, that there were attacks, knife attacks by various people from North Africa against Chinese people in uh, in some suburb of Paris. And one of the, the, the things that uh, the attackers said, you know, that uh, why, why are you attacking the Chinese? And it wasn't because of anything the Chinese had done to them. He said they have nice clothes and big cars. That's not fair. Hmm. I mean, that's you know, egalitarianism as a philosophy is one thing, but the actual consequences of it uh, uh, mean things like uh, resenting other people's good fortune. Right. All right. So. One response to the gap, again, I return to this gap between African-Americans and other Americans, affirmative action, yes. which brings us back to your alma mater, Harvard. According to I never, I'll never live it down. You'll never live it down, yes. You once told me that the principal benefit of a Harvard degree was never again having to be impressed by anybody who had a Harvard <laughs> degree. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So these are figures that were published in the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper. In the Harvard class of 2019, these are the kids who will be graduating next June, the average SAT score for black students was 2149. By the way, these are all good scores, but for black students, 2149, white students, 2218, Asian students, 2300. Mm. Well, now that must be reasonable because it's taking place at Harvard, the seat of reason. Well, uh, well that, that wasn't quite how I described it when I was there. <laughs> Affirmative action. Is that is that we ought not to be doing this? You know, there are, there are various uh, laws and policies that benefit one group at the expense of another. But I think affirmative action has the distinction of being one that it harms everybody, though in different ways. And so you, you, there, there, there's a lot of evidence that there are black kids who have all the qualifications to be successors in college who nevertheless are failures because they are systematically mismatched with institutions whose standards they don't meet, even though they may meet the standards of 80 or 90 percent of the colleges in America. I remember I first aware of this when I was teaching at Cornell, and I found that half the black students at Cornell were on some kind of academic probation. And so I went over to the administration building and looked up the SATs of these students. The average black student at Cornell at that time scored at the 75th percentile. Which is pretty darn good. Yes. And so that means that in, that in most colleges in this country, they would have no trouble, and many of them would be on the dean's list. But at Cornell, the average uh, liberal arts student at that time was in the 99th percentile. And, and, when, you, when, you, and when you're teaching students like that, uh, you teach at a pace that most people of any race cannot keep up with. And I, I was, it was always complained that I was assigning all kinds of uh, reading but heck, you know, I'm teaching kids who are in the top one percent. They can they they can keep up with it, with the reading that I'm right. assigning. Uh, so Cornell was taking very talented black kids and spending four years teaching them to feel inadequate. Yes, and succeeding at that. Mm. Um, a couple quotations. This is these are both from the last affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court. Last big affirmative action case to reach the Supreme Court. 2003, uh, Grutter versus Bollinger. Here's the majority opinion, which was written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, quote, the court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary. <laughs> this upholding the use of, in a decision, 5-4 decision, upholding the use of racial preferences. Now, that's quotation one. Here's quotation two, Justice Thomas, Justice Clarence Thomas, 
in a dissent. Quote, I believe that blacks can achieve in every avenue of American life without the meddling of university administrators. The court holds that racial discrimination and admissions should be given another 25 years. While I agree that in 25 years these practices will be illegal, they are illegal now. <laughs> Close quote. So, here's, what do you do with the argument that Justice O'Connor, writing that majority opinion, there's something of the constrained vision there. Look, we have these, all universities across the country are using these racial preferences to as the basis of admission. The best we can hope to do is tell them they ought not to be doing it, that they should be developing other standards and give them a, give them a clock. Is that, that's a, is that a reasonable thing to do? No, but it's a universal thing to do. Uh, I wrote a book uh, about affirmative action. It was called Affirmative Action Around the World. And I made a couple of uh, international trips at the expense of the Hoover Institution uh, around the world to check on affirmative action. This is one of the one of the most common arguments. It is absolutely fallacious time and time again. The argument that, that, like so much in the unconstrained vision, it assumes that we have a power that we do not have, cannot have, and never have had. Yeah. Uh, in, in England, there was a man named Scarman who was saying, "For the now, we must do this in order to." Uh, and in many countries, these pro these programs were set up with an actual cutoff date. So it was set up with, in, in Malaysia with a cutoff date, I think, of around it, it set with 1990. And in Pakistan, I, it was like it was supposed to go for 10 years. Mm -hmm. None of those th the cutoff dates has met a, a, a thing. These programs not only continue, they increase, they spread. So the idea that you can control the future uh, because of these wonderful sounding words, I can't think of a country in the world where, where, where that's ever happened. Uh, in the case of Pakistan, they did have an actual, actual cutoff date. Uh, and because the people in East Pakistan were, for whatever historical reason, way behind the people in West Pakistan. And so there's these preferences with East Pakistanis. Now, before time for this thing to expire, the East Pakistanis uh, seceded from Pakistan and formed a new nation of Bangladesh. Bangladesh, right. And the preferences continued right on because there were other groups that had been added to it. And so once you get the constituency, you can't say no to them. I see. But it, 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 is, it is an argument that, that, that has never worked out anywhere that I've been able to, to, to check. All right. So... Tom Sowell says no to the welfare state, no to affirmative action. What is to be done? And now you were kind enough to share with me uh, uh, the galleys of your forthcoming edition of Discrimination and Disparities. Let me give you a few quotations from some of the new, the new chapter in yeah. that book. Quote, the poverty rate among black married couples has been less than 10% every year since 1994. As far back as 1969, Young black males whose homes included newspapers, magazines, and library cards had similar incomes to those of their white counterparts. Academic outcomes show a pattern of disparities similar to the pattern of disparities in the amount of time devoted to schoolwork. Apparently, lifestyle choices have consequences. Yes. Close quote. So this is the constrained vision once again. Welfare state, that's government, we don't rely on that. Affirmative action, government, we don't rely on that. We rely on hard work. We rely on the institution of 
marriage? Is, is, that's correct? Yes, in other words, these, these things, I don't think it's the marriage as such or the library cards as such. It's that there are lifestyle choices that have been made. And the, and the comparison I made was between, if you look at the poverty rate among blacks, uh, uh, it was a 22%, and among whites, it was 11%. But among black married couples, it was 7.5%. Right. So it's not so they not only do better than blacks as a whole, they do better than whites as a whole. And so it's 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 so, so it's lifestyle choices. Similarly, with with the results and the some of these uh, more successful charter schools, that uh, you have these kids not only uh, meeting but exceeding the national standards in places like ha Harlem and Bedford-Stuyvesant in the South Bronx. And these are not kids who are skimming the crown cream. They're kids chosen by lottery. They don't even test them for ability. They don't even look at their academic records. They take them into the schools and they, and they, and they have hard work and they, they make it clear at the outset and they don't tolerate a lot of nonsensical behavior. Uh, and, and, and these kids are doing incredibly. All right, so there you have Tom Sowell, who um, is one of my favorites, and he talks quite quite a bit in there about um, what I would say the the fallacy of the utopia. So he says socialism is a great idea, it's not a great reality. And another argument that that he makes that I really believe in strongly is that uh, any population, whether it's based on race or whatever you class or whatever. Uh, any population can only improve through their own actions. There's no, there's no program that's going to be the magical wand to to change human life in the in this uh, in this time or any time. And um, I'd like to know, you know, what do you think? What do you, is his uh, is his argument um, is his argument on target? If it, if it isn't, why? I mean, what is what is the uh, the problem in, in your minds? And uh, feel free to comment on this video and let me know. And I'll be having um, uh, future guests that will talk about you know the turning point with Barack Obama uh, in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for that. We'll take a quick break and be right back. Hey, Patriots, it's Jeff Wagner. Let's face it, it's getting harder and harder to make ends meet. It's only going to get worse. This inflation is going to continue. As a matter of fact, our dollar is in jeopardy of even existing with the crazies that want to go to the digital currency to control us all. You can go to KirkElliottPhD.com slash The Patriot Review, get all kinds of free, great information, and invest in gold and silver for your future. Our world is full of electromagnetic fields that even though we can't see them, are affecting our bodies, our sleep, and even our ability to think clearly. The advent of 5G is only making this worse. There is an answer. Visit Fix the World by clicking the link in the Patriot Review show description below to view natural products that can actually protect you from EMF and 5G and even improve your sleep. Skeptical? Get the free Dangers of EMF Radiation eBook free by clicking on its direct link also in the show description all right so we're back i'm going to just uh jump in here with the, the last video so we talk about uh, america we talk about marxism socialism fascism as we're seeing in today's uh anti-american government and um 
and so forth. And and we get into this argument on the individual level level, and we talk about individual liberty, individual freedoms given to us by God. But there's a larger argument, and this is where the universities really attack the United States of America. And uh, they have an attitude that uh, the United States is inherently bad in many cases. And uh, they fail to see what the system truly is and could be if not for the federal government uh, and government in general screwing it up. Milton Friedman is one of my favorite economists of all time. And uh, he, uh, there's different clips here, but uh, but the main clip that I want to bring a, uh, attention to is uh, you know the, the beginning where he's talking with Phil Donahue. Take a listen. Tell me, is there some society you know that doesn't run on greed? You think Russia doesn't run on greed? You think China doesn't run on greed? What is greed? Of course, none of us are greedy. It's only the other fellow who's greedy. <laughs> this, the world runs on individuals pursuing their separate interests. The great achievements of civilization have not come from government bureaus. Einstein didn't construct his theory under order from a, from a, a bureaucrat. Henry Ford didn't revolutionize the automobile industry that way. In the only cases in which the masses have escaped from the kind of grinding poverty you're talking about, the only cases in recorded history are where they, where they have had capitalism and largely free trade. If you want to know where the masses are worse, worse off, worst off, it's exactly in the kinds of societies that depart from that. So that the record of history is absolutely crystal clear that there is no alternative way so far discovered of improving the lot of the ordinary people that can hold a candle to the productive activities that are unleashed by a free enterprise system. But it seems the only way in which you can redistribute effectively the wealth is by destroying the incentives to have wealth. And the question is, what is the way, what is a system which will offer those people who are so unlucky as to be born without uh, good positions. What is the system which will offer them the greatest opportunity? Well, one possible way of redistributing the wealth without affecting the incentives to earn as much income as possible is simply to have a 100% inheritance tax. Uh, but Since that, that won't not, affect the incentives, it's only after the person is dead your, anyway. I beg your pardon. Uh, you're too, uh, I'm afraid, uh, uh, I don't know the family you come from. <laughs> I don't, uh, but as you grow up, you will discover that this is really a family society and not an individual society. We tend to talk about an individualist society, but it really isn't. It's a family society. And the greatest incentives of all, the incentives that have really driven people on, have largely been the incentives of family creation, of family, of pursuing, of establishing their families on a decent system. What is the effect of 100% inheritance tax? The percent of a 100% inheritance tax is to encourage people to dissipate their wealth in high living. What's the harm in that? <laughs> the harm in that is that where do you get the factories? Where do you get the machines? Where do you get the capital investment? Where do you get the incentive to improve technology? If what you're doing is to establish a society in which the incentive is for people who, if they by accident accumulate some wealth, to waste it in frivolous entertainment, you know, the thing is that the thing that is amazing that people don't really recognize is the extent to which the market system has, in fact, encouraged people and enabled people to work hard and sacrifice 
in what I must confess I often regard as an irrational way for the benefit of their children. One of the most curious things to me in observation is that almost all people value the utility which their children will get from consumption higher than they value their own. Here are parents who have every reason to expect that their children will have a higher income than they ever had. And they scrimp and save in order to be able to leave something for their children. I think you are sort of like a bull in a china shop if you talk about the 100% inheritance tax having no incentive effects. It would destroy a continuing society. It would destroy a society. All right, so the main point that I want to get across there is that um, we need to get back to our roots. We need to get back to being a family-based society. And uh, we need to reject all attempts to to change our free market system. And um, we need to get the federal government under control. And that is what the MAGA movement is all about. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. I will be back tomorrow to close out the week. Uh, we'll see you then. God bless you all.